Okay, so I want to begin today by expressing a concern that I have. It is a deep-seated concern that seems to grow worse with time, not better. And my concern is that Christian leaders, okay, now I'll just give you the disclaimer on the front side. I, I have to include myself in that, so my concern involves myself here, but in the broad spectrum of ministry in, the, in my generation, let's say, I have great concerns that we as Christian leaders have failed in equipping Christians to pray effectively. I have a number of reasons, um, I guess I would say, support for that concern. First of all, I've been a student of Christian congregations now for a number of years. Uh, I, I regularly hear this from people, and it is an indictment, not against the person, but against Christian leadership. Because I regularly hear Christians say to me, I, I just don't know how to pray. Um, that's a tragedy. And if you happen to be one of those sitting out there going, wait a minute, now, now you're talking about me. I, I want you to hear me say this well. If you don't know how to pray, largely that comes back on Christian leaders and the churches that they pastor or lead. We have, that is Christian leadership, has reacted to that statement of I don't know how to pray with what I consider to be a dangerous formulaic kind of response. So instead of teaching people about how to pray and how to connect with God, is another way to say prayer, um, we have thrown formulas out. And the formulas themselves are not necessarily wrong or bad, they're just not best. And so we taught this, um, this word and each of the letters of this word stand for something in prayer and many of us sitting here in this room I'm sure uh, have this in the back of our mind when it comes to okay how do you pray then we go to this word axed a-c-t-s and we've used that as Christian leaders to teach people how to pray by saying prayer needs to start with and now that in itself is a bad statement, but that's the way we typically say it. It needs to start with adoration. That's the A from the word acts. And so that's that praise part of your prayer life where you respond to God and just worship him for who he is. It's not a bad part of prayer. It's a very necessary part of prayer. But the next one comes is after the adoration, then you go to confession. And I can hear teachers through the years for me, and even the way I've taught this through the years uh, of how confession works, and that's an acknowledgement of your own sin and taking it before God, and, and I see and I hear the flow of that, and it makes good sense. And after the confession part comes the T, which is for thanksgiving, uh, and so we move to that. And then the last one is, one. interestingly, we use a church word in trying to teach people how to pray. It's a word that I'm guessing. Now, I got in trouble last time I said this statement, and that is that you probably haven't used this word in a sentence all week long. I said that a few weeks ago about propitiation. You remember that? And one smart aleck guy in our church came up to me. He's not really a smart aleck. I just, 
I like to call him that. Uh, And I'll name him by name later so you know who I'm talking about. No, I won't either. He says, as a matter of fact, I did use that word in Sunday school this morning. Okay, so you cheated. That's fine. We'll go with that. We probably haven't used the word supplication in our everyday conversation this week, have we? And yet that's what the S for Acts stands for, and it's that part of prayer where we pray for other people. Here's my concern about that. We, we so easily and so quickly formulize the Christian life, and then we just work the formula. And the problem with that is this is not a religious system, this thing called the Christian life. It is a real, live relationship with a real, live God. And so we trivialize the relationship by reducing pieces of it to a formula. And if we really get honest with it, it, it's like a snub to God himself when we work the system rather than respond to him as a person. And yet that's kind of what we've done in teaching. It's just easier that way. The third example of, or the third ground for my concern about this, I think, is how quickly prayer becomes a point of relief for us. Maybe I'll say it this way, and this true story comes out of Kentucky Uh, And it's been a number of years now, but uh, this was reported in a national publication with credibility a number of years ago. And uh, the story goes this way, that a family visited a church in Kentucky, and they were a church-going family. So the, the pomp and circumstance of a church service there was what it was, and they were used to that. But what they weren't used to was the out of control child who was uh, directly in their line of sight. And and they wrote about how this kid was bothering everybody around him. He's kind of, kind of right on the edge of being obnoxious, which made him obnoxious and a total distraction until finally at some point when the pastor was somewhere in his sermon, the dad had had enough and the dad reached that point where the kid crossed the line. The dad snatched him up, threw him under his arm and started marching him to the back door. And just before they got out of the auditorium, that kid yelled out in his best Kentucky local flavor, y'all pray for me now. (laughs) And my concern is that so much of the prayer that we practice in our churches is mirrored in that kid's call. It's a point of relief, whether it's for us or for somebody close to us, we want to pray for them. Let me give you a good case in point. You should have gotten one of these when you came in. Now, just so you know it, um, now some of you are going, I did get one of those. I haven't looked at it, which is kind of normal, I think. We hand stuff out and people don't look at it too much. Uh, And I don't really want to call attention so much. Well, clearly I'm calling attention to it and its content, but I'm not going to read through it and I don't want you to read through it right now necessarily. I, I, I want to make this point. We hand this out in every service that we have on Sundays, week after week after week. We've done that since before I got here. 
Uh, I have enough of an issue with it that I'm bringing it up here today, but it's not all wrong, okay? Uh, If it was all wrong, I would have discontinued its use somewhere uh, relatively early in my time here as pastor. So I'm not saying that it's all wrong, but I am saying that it's not all right. And, And it's tied to the content of our prayers. And the way we tend to reduce this thing that is such an intimate part of our relationship with God, this thing called prayer, with the way we reduce it to formulas and the way we reduce it to religious exercises opens the door for us just to use prayer as a relief valve in our lives. And so I wake up in the morning as I did this morning and my head's full of Southeast Texas wildlife. And my, you know, my eyes hurt and my head hurts, which makes my attitude hurt. And so if I pray about it at all, that's a big if, but if I pray about it at what, let me just go ahead and finish that if. The reason it's a big if, if I pray about it at all, is because I don't need to pray about it because somebody has put together medicine that I can take and I don't even need God to feel better from that sinus stuff. You with me? But don't miss it. Because whatever medicine I take for that, the goal of taking the medicine is for relief. Right? And so we treat prayer that way. And so we wake up and it's not our head or our attitude that hurts. It's Aunt Susie's ingrown toenail with those nice yellow. (laughs) They don't even have to finish it. And bless her heart, Aunt Susie needs us to pray for her. So how do we pray for her? We pray for her relief. Hence, 90%, I'm guessing, of the prayer requests in your Sunday school classes and in our church prayer list and the church email that we send out. Hear me very carefully, please. I am not saying that we should not pray for those things. I am saying that because that seems to be the part parcel of our entire prayer experience in the Christian life these days, that as a Christian leader, I'm concerned that we have dropped the ball. So what I'd like to do is to offer a couple of alternatives to that kind of prayer this morning. Now, I'm really going to focus in on the second one, but I think the first one drives the second one, so hang with me for a couple of minutes on this one. Here's the first alternative that I think we should get. That is, we should begin to approach prayer as connection with God. I'm going to let that sink in just a little bit. Several things I'm going to say today, I'm going to pause and and let it sink in because we need to build on a few of these statements. This one is such a critical element in the Christian life and yet it was something that uh, I never even knew was part of the, the need until I was well into my Christian experience. We must approach prayer as it is connection with God rather than just a religious exercise. I don't know what kind of Christian reading you do. 
But if you get the chance to read some of Richard Foster's material, I highly recommend that you do it. He's a Quaker, actually, uh, but he is a looming figure in Christian writing these days. And here's what he says, and he's tying into our tendency to reduce our whole Christian experience to a religious experience. Foster says this, and Jesus is inviting you and me to come home, to come home to where we belong, to come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long, we have been in a far country, a country of noise and hurry and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And Jesus welcomes us home, home to serenity and peace and joy, home to friendship and fellowship and openness, home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. That's what prayer should produce in us. The opportunity to step into an audience with God himself. That opportunity to connect with God himself is what prayer is. And when we treat it as if it's just something that we can check off of our daily list of things to do, and we reduce that opportunity for engagement with God to just a simple list of people who need us to pray for their relief and then we move about our business is a travesty in the relationship. The problem is that that kind of prayer is a lot harder. I'm talking about the kind that Foster's talking about, the kind that I'm promoting here. That connection with God kind of prayer is much harder than the religious experience prayer where we just kind of say, well, I just got to check my boxes off and so we pray through that list and then we're on about our business. It's a lot easier to just pray a list than it is to wait silently before God. And so most of us, Typically, because our leaders are not training us on how to do that, we settle for a cheap substitute of one of the greatest privileges in Christianity. So maybe the question for this one today, and this is not even the primary message of the day, but it certainly is one that catches, I think. Do you even want that kind of prayer life? Here's another quote. This is the last one I'll read to you today. I know you don't want to hear what other people have to say necessarily, but you may not hear what I want to have. You may not want to hear what I have to say, but that's all right. You're here, so suffer through it. This was written almost two decades ago, but it continues to be a challenge for me. If we don't want to experience God's closeness here on earth, why would we want to go to heaven? Jesus is the center of everything there. If we don't enjoy being in his presence here and now, 
then heaven would not be heaven for us. Why would he send anyone there who doesn't long for him passionately here on earth? And to that I say, ouch. So let me make one of those kind of big looming statements that's kind of a challenge that I pray someone will take me up on. It is my belief that a church that emphasizes this kind of prayer, this connecting with God kind of prayer, a church that emphasizes that kind of prayer is sure to turn their community upside down for the kingdom of God. You know why I say that? Because the best model for us of that kind of connection with God was Jesus himself. And Jesus, in that part of his ministry before the Pharisees take center stage and begin moving him, or in in their view, they're moving him to the cross. Uh, We all know that that was where he was going anyway. But in, in that early part of his ministry, we see Jesus just going out and being who he was with people, and people were just flocking to him. You know why that's the case? Because as Kevin said earlier, I hate to give him credit for saying something right, but he was right on target with this. People are looking for life. And so for a church that becomes full of people who get prayer right at this point, life just bubbles out of you when you connect with God. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about for us. So that's the first approach that I would like to encourage for us. And that's a whole other series of sermons that we'll get to at some point. Here's the second one, and I will spend the rest of the time that I have with this. First, I said we should approach prayer as connection with God. Now I suggest that we also approach prayer as connection with other Christians. Now, this is not necessarily what you think. This is the part of prayer, contrary to what I just said, because what I just said was... Prayer, I do this for me. That's the kind of prayer I just got through talking about. I do this for me because as I connect with God, I become fuller in my life. But this kind of prayer I'm talking about now is the I do this for you kind of prayer. So let's look into that. Now we're into our text for the day. 1 John, I know some of you were thinking, is he not even going to use the Bible? 1 John chapter 5. We are in that final stretch where John is moving his readers, which include us, to the the final statement that he has for us. He's wrapping up this argument that he's had, this uh, cyclical kind of approach where he makes these statements of purpose. There's four of them in the book. And he visits one of them and he'll talk about it and support it and then he'll come back and make another statement and he'll visit that one and support it and get all of them and then he'll kind of circle back around. And so it's this, this nice kind of jumbled argument for the four things that he has been promoting. And he comes to the end and he says this in verse 16 of chapter 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not 
lead to death, which sounds a little bit like John tripped over his own argument there and he kind of gets lost a little bit in there. But let me, a couple of weeks ago, I think, maybe last week, I, I told you that this little passage that we're in has a number of theological landmines for us. And scholars through the years have loved to write many pages on what John means by all of this kind of stuff. And so uh, for any pastor who gets up and tries to preach this passage, there are some landmines that he's really got to be careful that he doesn't step on, theologically, that is. Here's one of them. Uh, what does he mean by a sin that does not lead to death? And about the time you get a, a good solid dose of that when he turns right around trying to clarify himself, and here's another one of those landmines, what does he mean by a sin that leads to death? And then if that's not enough, the third part of verse 16 there, he kind of leads us wondering, should I pray for somebody committing a certain kind of sin or not? And then the fourth one, is, and this is uh, in verse 16 again, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. But you see, here's the deal with that. Um, All the translations don't read that way. And the fact that we have varying translations here is a pretty good sign that interpreters and translators are trying to wrap their mind around Uh, the theological landmines that we have here. And so I want you to listen carefully because you're not going to hear me say this very often, okay? Um, The King James Version probably has the best translation to this, all right? I don't say that very often because most of the time, and one of the reasons I don't preach out of the King James Version is because I don't like the way they translate some things out of the original language. Here they get it right, and it's very literal the way they say it. So I'm going to read it out of the King James and highlight a couple of things. Here's the way it reads. If any man sees his brother sin a sin, very literally that's sinning a sin, they go on to say, if any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin, not unto death. And so we get into this problem of, okay, the personal pronoun that's used there, and he shall give him life. Who's the he there? Well, the NIV and the ESV pick it up, and they translate that as God. And God shall give them life. Now that's okay with me. I don't want you to get lost in all the weeds here. I'm about off of this, but I need you to understand something of the struggle that we have with this. The deal is that we understand God's the only one who can give life, or at least I understand that. Do you understand that? God is the only one who can give life. There is no other name given among men by which we, what? And be saved. So God's the only one who can give life, so I'm okay with them inserting that in there to help for clarification's sake, but we need to get what John's saying. He shall give him life. That causes us to come back and say, okay, so what is the life thing there? And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Because I happen to believe God's the only one who can give life, but what John's whole point here is, is that you and I need to be actively involved in praying for our brothers who are in rebellion against God. I'm talking about our brothers, those are Christians, who are in rebellion against God. We have a role to play in them getting life. And I'm not talking about the eternal, I'll come back to that in just a second. So with all of that in mind, let's come down, and here's the deal. 
There's one other theological deal there, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But here's, here's a good question to ask. Anytime you come to Bible study, anytime you sit under a teacher, whether it's your Sunday school class, anytime you listen to some of those guys on TV, anytime you do your own personal Bible study, after you work through the text and you see what's written there, ask yourself this little two-word question. So what? My point in that is that we always need to take the extra step of seeing what Scripture says, and by asking so what, the question now becomes, what do I do with that? How does that piece of Scripture impact my life? And especially here, we're talking about prayer because that's what he's talking about. And so the question becomes, how does that impact my prayer life? So let me get you here. One of the reasons, one of those four stated purposes that John has for writing this is over in chapter 2, verse 1. You can look there if you want, but here's essentially what it says. John says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. I've been preaching out of this thing for 13 weeks now. How are you doing on the you shall not sin part of this? Probably just like me. I haven't made a full day yet where I haven't sinned. Okay, I'm being real generous by giving myself a whole day to measure it. I could bring it down to an hour. I haven't made a full hour yet without sin because sin is always just part of who I am and what I seem to do. And yet John holds that standard up. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. One of the great truths of this little letter is that John knows that you're not going to be able to pull that off. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin... He, that is Christ, is faithful and just to hold your sin against you forever. Is that what it says? No, that's how people respond to your sin. For he, that is Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it says. So John holds the standard up. I'm writing this so that you won't keep on sinning. And several places in there in this whole letter, he comes back to that. You shouldn't be stuck on this cycle of sinning in your life all the time. Rise to the level that is designed. But when you don't, there's forgiveness available. So here's the question in church life based on that. That's all what about me, right? But John, at this point, as he turns for the finish line in his argument, he pushes it out. What do you do about those people in the church, the brothers, who seem to embrace sin in their lives? And they're not trying to shoot for the level of no sin. They, as a matter of fact, seem to be just going on through their everyday lives and they've embraced certain kinds of sin in their life and they're not doing anything about it. They don't even seem to care about that sin in their lives. Now, in case you think, all right, I'm going to take a chance on losing everybody right here. In case you think that that's somebody else, how many speeding tickets have you received? Or whatever the choice of the sin of the day happens to be. All of us have the very real tendency to take a sin or a category of sins and to personalize them and protect them in our lives. 
And for some, it may be gossip. For some, it may be lying. For others, it may be any number of things. John is saying here, look again at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, committing a sin, the ESV says. The primary teaching point of this whole passage is that we need to be praying for each other. Now, it would be easy for us to argue quickly, well, you got a yellow piece of paper in your hand that says we're sin- that we're praying for each other. The problem with this is that most of the time, these don't reflect the kind of prayer that John's talking about here. All right, now let me be careful. Let me make sure that we're all on the same page. Do not call me at the church office or one of our secretaries and say, you know what, I need you to put, you know, brother so-and-so, you remember that smart guy I was talking about earlier? No, I'm just kidding. He's a dear friend of mine. He knows I'm pulling his leg here. Um, do not call the church office and say, you know, brother so-and-so, uh, he's got a real problem uh, with anger. And so we want you to put him on the prayer life that got to get his anger stuff straight. Okay? I'm going to tell you, that's your husband. Don't talk about him like that at church. <laughs> do not call the church office and say, uh, you know, one of those deacons, they got a bad problem with stealing. They're stealing candy bars. They get all the time. They go, don't do that. I'm not going to put that in here, okay? But because, don't miss what I'm saying. Just because we're not going to put that in a published prayer list doesn't mean that you shouldn't be praying for that person. If you see that brother sinning that sin, that needs to be on your prayer list. Now, we could talk about how it needs to be prayed about. Maybe we'll do that here in just a second. One of those landmines here is that whole idea of a sin unto death versus a sin that's not unto death. So let me answer the second one first. I think, among other things, this could be a very lengthy discussion. I'm not going to make it that. I'm going to cut to the chase. According to John's argument throughout his whole letter, the context of this letter says... And when John's talking about a sin that leads to death, he's referring to those people who are using a phrase from Paul now, already dead in trespasses and sin. Because those false teachers in John's congregation there, or who had been in John's con- congregation, because they refused to accept the divinity of Jesus Christ, they were already dead. Their sin condition, I want you to think about it that way, had already resulted in them being dead and separated from God. By rejecting Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life which qualified him to be the substitutionary death, the sacrifice, the atonement for sin. By rejecting Jesus Christ, not only are they already dead, that sin leads them to death, spiritual death. Not only are they dead, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says is, you're that one separated from God. That makes sense? If it makes sense to you and you don't believe that, uh, then we should talk. And I'm happy to have an ongoing conversation. I don't want you to believe it just because I said it. But scripture is clear that this one Jesus is the only way to life. But they rejected that, the sin that leads to death. 
So John here is not talking about them. He's not saying you should not pray for them. Quite the contrary, we absolutely should pray for them. John's just saying, I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the brother who is sinning the sin that doesn't lead to death. In other words, because you have accepted Christ as your Savior, that sin condition is taken care of, but the choice to sin is still an everyday occurrence for you. And John says very clearly, That's who we need to be praying for. But we don't teach that kind of prayer in church for some reason. As a matter of fact, what we tend to do is, well, I almost hate to say that, but what we tend to do is to identify those people who live in sin like that, and then we isolate them. Or we just talk about them. I'll come back to that in just a second. I know you're thinking, he's coming back to a lot of stuff. Let's get on with it. All right, here, let's get on with it. Let's talk about life real quick, and then we'll pull it down. Some translations even throw the word eternal in here to help clarify what they think John means. We talk about life and eternal life especially. What do we mean by that? Now, typically, we take eternal as a unit of measurement, a quantity kind of a statement. So here's an audience participation question. How long is eternal life? When does it end? Never? Never? You really believe that? Okay, now that's the right answer. Eternal means it never ends. And yet we still get church people who get locked up on whether a Christian can lose their salvation or not. Uh, By definition, the term eternal says that you can't lose it, doesn't it? Because if you can lose it, then it wasn't eternal, whatever else it was. All right, so I don't want to get locked up in that, but I do want to say this. When we talk about life often, and John is big on this. John uses this word life here regularly in his gospel, and here he talks about eternal life. And so we immediately want to jump to that. So he's talking about people. God gives them eternal life if we pray for them. Well, that becomes a theological problem. Don't forget what John also said. Actually, Jesus said it, and John recorded it in John chapter 10, verse 10. Another element of this life that Jesus offers to us. In John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to give you a mediocre religious experience. Is that what he says? All right. See why it's important that you listen all the way through this? Because you wake up halfway through that, you're going, I can't believe the preacher. Jesus said, I have come that you, the thief come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life. Now, there's another word in there that I left out. What is it? The word is abundant. The problem with the English translation of the word um, is that it's soft. Abundant life could mean any number of things. Plenty of bluebell that hasn't been tainted. (laughs) Coffee with an IV. So let me rotramalize that word for you. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life that will blow your mind. Now that captures, or starts to capture something of what Jesus offers. 
So here's how it all fits with John. John says throughout this whole book, he talks about loving each other. And he says to us, when you see a brother within the church, within the kingdom of God, somebody who is a Christian brother with you, when you see them holding on to sin in their lives, you need to pray for them. Why would you do that? Why would you pray for them? And the answer that he gives us throughout his book is because you love them. The whole relationship that we have with Christ forces us to love one another. If that's the case, then why do so many churches crucify people with sin in their life? And we don't formally do that because we're way too religiously sophisticated to do that. But we pick them out of a crowd we identify them as dirty and we park them over on the side and then we just systematically edge them right out of the fellowship. I'm, I'm deeply bothered by the response that I'm seeing from Christian community to the march of gay, lesbian, transgendered agenda in United States life. Now, hear me carefully now. Scripture is very clear about that particular lifestyle. And yet, I hear from Christian people hate towards those people. The fact that I even say those people is an indicator of where we are in some of our church positioning on this. And I hear these discussions among church leaders how do we keep these people out of our churches? Let me give you a news flash. Jesus loved that person as much as he loved you, enough to die on a cross so that they might have life, eternal and qualitative. It's easy for me to pick that one because most of us would look around and go, well, see, well we kept them out of here. Well, congratulations. It's easier to talk about that than it is for us to talk about how we are or are not praying for the person who has a sin problem with gossip or a sin problem with anger or a sin problem with lust or a sin problem with you fill in the blank. Here's another little tidbit from this John emphasizes our role in the scenario when we see a brother sinning we should pray for them we should ask God to intervene there but really that's the deal see some translations say we should ask and others catch the tense of the verb there and say we shall ask it's a future uh, verb there um, but I think that John uses that different construction as a way to grab their attention once again because the intent for John is not that we should feel an obligation to pray for them. We see them, okay, so I'm obligated, I'll pray for them. We should or we shall. John writes this in such a way that it is the natural occurrence for us. It is the expected response. If I say to you, 
there's a snake on the floor. Okay? If you say that to me, there's going to be at least one death in that immediate vicinity very soon. Either the snake's going to die or I'm going to die, and it might be that both of us die. Okay? That's my natural response because I read the first few chapters of Genesis. I get the whole snake thing. Okay? I'm going to live up to my part of that. The natural expected response when you see a brother sinning is that you're going to pray for them. But you know what's wrong with that statement? We don't do that. Or at least it doesn't seem like we do. So as I close, for whom are you praying today? The people that God has placed into your Christian family for what are you praying for them what are you asking God to do for them you realize that you could ask God to heal Aunt Susie's big toe and Aunt Susie use that as the opportunity to keep on being a hate monger in the body of Christ and God might just say what are you thinking the example for me of this Probably is Peter. In Luke chapter 22, I think it's in verse 32, Jesus is having that discussion with Simon Peter before Jesus goes to the cross. And he says, Simon, this is one of the most uh, challenging statements Jesus ever makes, I think. Simon, Satan has desired to sift you. But I have prayed for you. And when you're restored, Jesus goes on from there. Hear hear what happens. Jesus recognizes that Simon is ripe for failure, just like me and just like you. And Jesus says, and I've prayed for you. And when you're restored, in other words, Jesus knew he wasn't going to cut it. But when you're restored, somehow God takes my prayers for a sinning brother into account. I don't understand that, but I'm certainly willing to accept that. Because in the midst of my deepest rebellion, years later, I asked my mom, how'd you get through that? And her response was very Jesus-like. Mark, I prayed that God would kill you and take you home rather than let you live like that. It's good for us to know that divine love trumps motherly love. So how are you praying for people? Let's pray. And Father, we ask you to take this message with all of the holes left in it and complete it to your glory in the hearts of your people. We pray that lives would be changed. We pray that you would change us, make us a church committed to connection with you and intercession for others. In Jesus' name, amen.